This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the best of First Up for Thursday the 10th of June called Katrina Batanaho. In today's pod, the government extends about 10,000 temporary working visas and lets agricultural workers in, why there's no more money for nurses and what will Pfizer deliveries look like after July, the Deputy PM explains, and an Auckland GP worries the public is not taking COVID-19 seriously enough. But first, around 30,000 nurses across the country downed tools on Wednesday in protest against pay and working conditions. The action comes after failed negotiations in which nurses voted on Monday to go ahead with the strike, rejecting a revised pay offer from district health boards. Our reporter Ella Stewart was there as staff walked off the job at Auckland Hospital. She spoke with nurses Maxine, Emma, Carolyn and Rangi, who said working conditions are practically prehistoric. Well, I've been nursing for almost 50 years and I have always faced challenges and enjoyed challenges but even though I am getting older, I'm finding the challenges along with the rest of the staff fairly taxing and for that reason, lack of staff, poor skill mix, lack of leadership I'm not just talking departmental, I'm talking from a service poor communication coming through so nurses are becoming mushrooms fed in the dark and that's about it so communication is really poor Underpinning all of that, there is still a good camaraderie amongst the nurses who are dragging themselves along and they are supporting each other with burnout. And burnout, I have been a manager myself for 30 years and I understand all of those things. I've never experienced it myself, but I think I've been pretty close to it just recently. So I start 8 o'clock. The area that I'm working in, when we're currently short staffed, and we've been short staffed for nine months now. and nothing necessarily is being done about it. They're struggling to fill the vacancies. The vacancies. Because we're, having, we're not getting um, nurses from overseas and there is no nurses to fill these vacancies. So the nurses that are there now have to cover, still, we're still covering the same amount of work, if not more. It's getting busier and busier as Auckland's growing. We're in, we're in OBS and Gaini. So babies, so, so yeah. they come whenever, every time of the day, 24-7, so that's us every single day. And so you rock up to work and then you start your day and it's yeah. already understaffed, what yeah. kind of happens throughout the day? Trying to find breaks, you know, 10-15 minute breaks if you're lucky, if you're lucky for someone to even come in and offer you a lunch break to relieve you, if you're lucky. The main thing about all of this is the patience, I think for all of us, because we are working in an environment where we are short-staffed. It's about the patients, but we can't do our job effectively with no staff. Like, safety becomes an issue. So staff are being pushed to the limits and then go off sick, which makes it worse. Because they're burnt out. Correct. But then another another aspect to look at it is that our patients end up getting cancelled. So they don't actually get surgery because we don't have the staff to do it. Sometimes we'll do it understaffed if it's very important, like if it's an emergency we'll do it understaffed. Other times if it's elective cases they'll have to cancel them and it just puts more strain on the whole department where our nurses feel that our managers are burnt out so we get burnt out and it's just a cycle that happens every single day pretty much. We stay late almost every single day. We don't get out of here until probably half an hour after our shift leaves sometimes. It's just how it is. And you come, come back and, and do it all the next day. Yeah. The next day. So with getting back to the pay, 
the pays and what we've heard on the media are saying that we've had significant pay rises, which I think most users feel are untrue. It really doesn't reflect, you know, the people now, what's just happened in New Zealand with the housing, the mortgages people have got, rents they've got, you name it, the supermarket I noticed the other day has gone up significantly. So how people with young children, which are predominantly nurses... Student loans. Student loans, it's, yeah, it just goes on and on. How are they surviving... I've been a nurse for three years and I'm borderline burnt out. And it only took three years. It took three years. It's taken me 50. It's taken me 30. 30 years. How about you? I am four, going on five. Four years. We do, you don't bleed. You say, oh, that was a terrible day. But the seriousness of it, and you can sit back and look, it's, it's grim. It's third world. It's horrible. It's prehistoric. I still live at home with my parents. I still have a student loan. <laughs> Yeah. So there's kind of no option to There's no out. option. I mean, no option. I would like to buy a house. I can forget about it now, especially living in Auckland. It's sad. I rent in Auckland. I'm also the only sole income in my house. My partner stays home. We have four children. It's really hard because we live below the living wage that's been set, pretty much. So it's hard to live because the cost of living is so high and then your income doesn't meet My that. income does not meet it. <laughs> So I came back when my daughter was four months old because we were understaffed. So I came back from maternity leave early to help out. And yeah, it's just been understaffed the whole way. And COVID-19, has that made it much worse for you all? That's another story altogether. It's made it worse, but COVID-19 for me, has it's, it's sad because we, were, we turned from heroes to now being forgotten. Really. Zero. Zero. Auckland nurses Maxine, Emma, Carolyn and Rangi who were on strike outside Auckland Hospital. An Auckland GP is concerned that the public is not taking COVID-19 seriously enough. It's been more than 100 days since New Zealand's last community case of COVID-19 and South Auckland doctor Sapna Summit says people are becoming too relaxed in their attitude towards the virus. Dr Summit told our host Nathan Radere that she's seen patients with obvious respiratory symptoms not be truthful when booking appointments and some are refusing COVID-19 tests when they're offered them. Winter has just started officially and what I have noticed is that people are more people presenting with respiratory symptoms upper respiratory tract symptoms but not really maintaining the kind of you know the distance or the the fact that you should not even be coming into the clinic for the doctor to see you but what are, yeah people are just coming in and, and trying to get through reception to see the doctor face to face with coughs and colds and runny noses and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, without actually, I mean, this has been going on for a year, right, that we should not be going in to see the doctor, call up, talk to the doctor. But no, more and more people are coming in with these symptoms face-to-face. You were saying that people are refusing to have COVID-19 swabs. Are they they giving reasons for that refusal? Oh, well, that's because according to them, they don't have COVID. So what is the point of the swab? Right. Uh, it, it takes a lot of convincing and a lot of energy. And I mean, I'm not speaking on behalf of all GPs, but we do, you know, grumble to each other from time to time about how hard it's becoming to convince people to take the swab because it's just a, you know, seasonal cold. So what's the point of the swab? Well, the point of the swab is to make sure we don't have a community case. Yeah. It's not to see whether you have COVID or not. 
I mean, I, I know that in Taiwan right now, they've they've had an outbreak and they were in a, a great situation like we were. They got relaxed and off it went. So is your fear right now that that's where our, you know, we could possibly be headed because of, you know, how relaxed you're seeing people coming into your practice? Exactly. This is my fear. And I, I'm, I just worry that there's going to be one, even one community case is just going to be a real disaster for us. People are just relaxed. It's, yes, it's winter, and we know that every winter we get people with OTs, as we call them, and we are prepared for that. And last year we were really, really vigilant. Everybody was vigilant. By now there's fatigue, you know. We are fatigued. Patients are fatigued. In general, we just want to move on away from the pandemic, but we're not, we're not going to move on at least for the next five years, I reckon. Yeah, it's it not exactly. Wrong. Yeah, it's not exactly you one know. of those ones you like. No, we're just going to have. We're not going to have COVID because I don't feel like it anymore. It's not a vase that you've got in your lounge, is it? It's a <laughs> thing to take seriously. <laughs> hey, look, I, I, I see, um, Doctor Simon. I, you know, I'm I'm very diligent about my scanning because I wanted to get to that 14 for 14 days thing on my scanning thing. And sometimes I'll go to the supermarket now. I've noticed it's dropped massively in that. But that's even just the scanning. And you're talking about the bit where people are coming into your practice and they're coughing and they're spluttering. Do you think people are, well? not being fully truthful when they fill out that form when they're going to things? I would say so. I, this is, I mean, obviously it's anecdotal. There's no, just based on my experiences, but I'm sure there will be a whole lot of GPs across the country who might have similar experiences about people not being truthful um, because they want to see their GP face-to-face. And what we know at, at primary care level is that Patients never come with one single issue. They come with a cluster of issues, and the coughs and colds are just just one concern. So they think, hey, you know what? I'll just talk about my thumb not healing from an injury two weeks ago, and then I'll just add in and say, oh, by the way, I have a sore throat. Can you have a look at it? Yeah. Even though they've denied to reception that they've got any respiratory symptoms, you know. Have you noticed it more this year? Because I think last year, because of the lockdown, if if, if I remember correctly, I think we had quite a, a low number of coldy flu type things. Has it gone up a lot more this year? It will be hard for me to give you any numbers or statistics because every winter we see a surge in in these symptoms, except maybe last year because of of lockdown and people being more vigilant about staying away from each other. You know, the social distancing, well, we've forgotten all of that now. So we're just back to what it used to be. If we did not have concerns about COVID, then I would say that this is what happens every winter. People just come in with these symptoms. But now we have COVID, so we really, really have to be careful. Auckland GP Dr Sutner Summit. The Deputy Prime Minister says it's an unfortunate truth that our nurses can earn more money in Australia as they demand better paying conditions. Nathan spoke with Grant Robertson about the vaccine rollout, criticisms of the government's levels of transparency and the complicated topic of transgender women's participation in women's sport. But he began by asking him whether after Wednesday's massive nurses' strike, it's time for the government to come to the table and offer our nurses the sort of recompense they'd be satisfied with for the difficult and vital work that they do. I think the first and starting point is that 
The government's got massive respect for nurses, for what they do in our health system and in our communities. And they've obviously got an absolute right to, to take industrial action. We've been working hard over the last four years, actually, to invest into the health system and, and really fix the underfunding that had happened for a, a long time before that. That means everything from fixing our hospitals and just the basics within them through to what we were able to do in 2018 and 19 with the settlement that we did come to with the nurses then. So, look, we're totally committed to getting back to, with the DHBs representing, obviously, the government, back to the negotiating team table to be able to see what we can sort out here. Obviously, there are some financial constraints in the wake of COVID, but we do understand the importance of this workforce and we want to negotiate in good faith. I hear that they can get something like 20% more in in Australia money-wise, but are you worried that some would leave? Because look at that, I think that's a pretty tempting offer. Yeah, look, I mean, unfortunately, that's been true for a long time. And the big settlement that we did in 2018, which I think put a a bit more than a billion dollars a year into the wages of of, um, our nurses and DHBs, that made a big difference. But unfortunately, it is the reality that you can get higher pay in some other places. Obviously, nursing is is a global environment, but we still think the salaries that are offered are competitive, along with other working conditions and clearly, you know, obviously living here in New Zealand. So no more so than in the past, but that doesn't stop us from knowing that we've got to sit down and have a good negotiation and do that in good faith. Mm. Um, our, uh, well, I guess I wouldn't call her a work colleague, but uh, works in the same field as us. Andrea Vance wrote a, a pretty cutting opinion piece about your government uh, this week and said that, um, you know, you're quite secretive and you've got too many comms people. Are you too heavy on the comms people? Maybe you could shed some and give some money to the nurses? Like, do you do you feel comfortable with how many comms people you've got handling your communications? Oh, look, you know, I mean, it's really important that we have the ability to be able to interact with the public and communicate what we're doing and hear from the public. And at any given moment, we're going to need comms people to help us, be it on the COVID response or, or the big reform processes we're doing in health or the RMA or wherever. But I, I don't really accept what Andrea had to say in her article. I mean, you know, her criticism is we aren't being transparent, but actually the the latest statistics around the Official Information Act um, shows that 97.2% of requests are being fulfilled on time. If we go back even to 2016, it was 91%. So we are getting better and we're improving that all the time. And that percentage was in the face of of a 27% increase in Official Information Act requests through last year, which was relating a bit to COVID. So I feel we are transparent. Our government's the first government to publish ministerial diaries. We routinely proactively release material now before it's asked for. So, you know, I can understand Andrea's got some specific frustrations that she was writing about. But actually, I do think the government is is improving transparency and there's always more we can do. But 97.2% is a pretty good result in terms of getting those OIAs out to people. Yeah, um, This might not be something you've heard about, but I spoke to a doctor just before, uh, Dr Sapna Samant, and she was concerned because she said, you know what, there's people, I see them coming into our practice. She said they're coughing. She just feels that, that people are getting really relaxed around you know, how to be uh, in these COVID times, that people are coming in with coughs and denying that they've got them while spluttering in the face of of the staff and they're doing things like, I've got a sore elbow, basically, 
telling perhaps porkies to get in and then going, oh, and by the way, I've got a sore throat and, and refusing to get tests and stuff. We've seen what's gone down in Taiwan, which is horrible to see to see that happen to them. How can we stop being another one of those when it sounds like everyone's getting a bit relaxed here, Grant? Yeah, look, I've, I've got to say that while I, you know, I, I haven't had that specific experience, obviously, I do think that we've got to be very, very careful and guard against complacency. You know, for everything from washing our hands, covering our faces when, uh, if we're going to sneeze or cough, making sure we do use the app, staying home if we're sick. It's so important. You know, one of the things I think people perhaps have have felt is that COVID is somehow rather over. It's not. The health impacts of it are being felt still around the world with third and fourth waves of the virus, new variants of the virus, let alone, you know, some other impacts around economic things and so on. So, you know, we must continue to be vigilant and in terms of, you know, going to the doctor and showing just making sure you ring up, you're clear about what your symptoms are, you have that conversation beforehand. So I do see some of that complacency and I think it's just vitally important that we stay the course here. We've done so well and it would be horrendous to be able to lose ground when we have done so well. Look, a number of sporting greats sent you a letter this week asking you to review a proposal to allow transgender women uh, to take part in girls' and women's sport. How do you ensure that transgender New Zealanders are able to participate in society and excel in sport and do things like that, while also maintaining the safety and competitiveness of women's sport? Yeah, it's a, you know, it is a complex and tricky area. But I, you know, I applaud Sport New Zealand for the fact that they've gone out, particularly firstly, to the rainbow community and to the trans community and said, how can we support people to participate and be involved and included in sport and recreation? And to me, that's the starting point. If we can all agree that we want all New Zealanders to have the opportunity to be part of sport, part of active recreation, part of things that are really intrinsic to being New Zealanders, I think that's a good starting point. And then we can work from there. Of course, we've got to consider overall everybody's safety, everybody's comfort, but an inclusion, an approach that's based on inclusion is the one I want. I think what's happening a little bit here is two different conversations are being put together. One of them is that one, which is just about everyone having the ability to have a go and have a chance here in New Zealand. The other is about elite sport and how we make the rules around who can compete you know, at that elite level. And that's by and large done by the international federations and i don't think it would be a good idea for politicians to be interfering too much in that and there you know there are lots of advances in terms of medicine and science and so on to be able to judge whether people are competing fairly against one another that's one issue but for me it's a fundamental premise everybody should have the right to participate and we should start our conversation from there deputy prime minister grant robertson The government is giving 200 dairy workers and 50 veterinarians permission to enter New Zealand. The Agriculture Minister Damien O'Connor made the announcement due to the pressures on the workforce as the new dairy season gets underway. Damien O'Connor spoke with Nathan. Okay, so why are these workers um, so essential? Um, Look, we have seasonal pressures um, in the primary sectors. Uh, We've acknowledged that with uh, RSE workers for viticulture and horticulture. And uh, as we move into spring, we've been aware that, uh, you know, the closure of the borders has made it uh, impossible for people to come in and out of the country. There's always been a high level of migrant workers across our whole economy, actually, but particularly in uh, in the dairy and agricultural sectors for seasonal work and uh, 
there has been pressure across dairy. They've been, you know, wondering how they'll get people for de- uh, for spring, and so we've acknowledged that pressure. We've found some space in MIQ. Still, lots of Kiwis wanting to come back home, of course. And uh, um, but the two hundred workers, you know, it it will help, and the fifty veterinarians in particular will be uh, of comfort to the whole industry because they need people to look after those uh, animals uh, in springtime. I mean, I understand the veterinarians because I guess that's a you know that's a quite quite skilled position that you've needed qualifications for and stuff. But how will we not able to fill those roles with people that are here already? Well, it's a very good question, and uh, a lot in the in the dairy sector have been uh, very innovative. They've been trying different things, and some employers can can fill those roles. But it's a simple uh, quantum of numbers. Um, there's a large number of migrants across many of our sectors: construction, uh, tourism, viticulture, horticulture. And as I say, they have been coming under pressure. People have been trying harder. Our unemployment rates, you know, still about. Under under 5%, uh, we are trying through MSD, uh, working across all government sectors to help get younger and older people out into these jobs. They they have accommodation, um, and and don't people don't always have the skills. Uh, it is isolated roles often, and so not suited to everyone. Um, but we're doing everything we can to fill those with New Zealanders first, and uh, you know this 200 workers will help uh, relieve some of the pressure. So we've got the 200 workers, we've got partners and dependents also being allowed to come um, as well. How, do, how does that work as far as MIQ goes and, and like who pays for that? Um, that would be paid for by the employers. Okay, um, so and, they'll, they'll have and, a job to come to? Yes, they will, absolutely they'll have to. And, and as I say, the employers will have to pay for the MIQ costs. And uh, So it's not simple. And uh, I, I'm guessing it will only be those um, farmers who really can't find anyone else um, you know it's not a cheap exercise for them at all um, but but they will be experienced uh, farm workers for the most part 150 of those will be you know at, at farm manager or, or assistant manager level I know you said that there's seasonal pressures so we've got this group coming in now do you envisage that you know you're going to have to do this again in, in a couple of months um, no, I mean springtime's um, you know quite a hectic time on farms. It eases off after that. Um, but what we've done, um, you know, with RSE workers is acknowledge that there'll, there'll be pruning uh, pressures through the winter, of course, for viticulture, and then as we move into the spring and we go through different cycles for um, a lot of different crops, um, those people will be available to help out there. Still pressure across the board. Um, all, all the uh, employers, you know, if, if they're looking ahead, they're, they're trying to get Kiwis who are, um, you know, hopefully more reliable, more available, and, and often they will be cheaper. That is that, you know, the costs of, of paying for MIQ and the rest of it uh, have to be covered by the employers. So if, if there are people around, uh, we're still encouraging uh, those employers to, you know, help train them, um, and, and the world, there should be a bigger effort across our whole economy, of course, to train New Zealanders up, and it's not just in these areas, but it's all the trades. We've been short of people. We have seen a, a high uptake of apprenticeships and people moving into uh, you know uh, vocational education. That's great news. Long-term, that will relieve the pressure, but there are some short-term acute needs, and this is what we're doing is acknowledging that. My colleague Chris Farfoy has also uh, announced this morning the rollover of people on work permits um, here so that there's some certainty for those people who 
are stuck in the economy. Um, some are not sure whether they'll, they'll have permits to continue working. That will also help us across all sectors. Agriculture Minister Damien O'Connor. Thanks for listening to The Best of First Up. Matewa.